Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Welcome to FT Politics, a weekly discussion on what's happening in Westminster from the Financial Times. I'm Sebastian Payne. In this week's episode, we'll be discussing Boris Johnson's very gradual plan for easing the lockdown. What's in his three-phased approach? What is actually changing in the UK this week? The confusion about messaging from the government and the differing approaches across the four nations of the United Kingdom. We'll also be digging into Rishi Sunak's decision to continue the expensive furloughing scheme until October and efforts to get the property market going again. I'm delighted to be joined by our chief political correspondent, Jim Picard, political correspondent, Laura Hughes, and our columnist, Robert Shrimsley. Thank you all for joining virtually. And if you find yourself liking this episode of FT Politics, then do subscribe to all the usual channels to receive it every Saturday morning. And that survey we talked about in the past is still going. If you'd like to get yourself a nice pair of Bose noise-canceling headphones, then do tell us what you do and don't like about this podcast. You can find details at ft.com forward slash politics survey. Last weekend, Boris Johnson spoke to the nation. 27 million people, in fact, tuned in to hear the Prime Minister's plan for easing the nationwide lockdown. He set out a very gradual three-stage approach, which, yes, you're right, you can guess it, it will be guided by the science. The Prime Minister is very keen to not move too quickly, but does want to get the economy going again and does want to get the country back to work. The first phase began on Wednesday with people in England being allowed to leave their homes more than once a day and go and sit in the park with one friend. But that approach wasn't taken by the other parts of the UK. So Jim Picard, could you just give us an overview of the Prime Minister's approach and what's in those three stages to try and get back to some normality in the UK? Yes, exactly. And so last week we saw the headlines suggesting that this was going to be some massive easing of the lockdown. When you look at the details of what's happening at the moment, it's actually quite fringe. So instead of being able to do one bit of exercise a day, you can do as much as you like. Well, I think some of us were ignoring the one exercise rule already. You can play golf, you can play tennis, you can go to a garden centre. But when it comes to the, the main situation, which is that if you can work at home, you should continue to work at home. That has not changed at all. And and they're talking about the second phase, which would be in June, where we could see non-essential shops opening and we'll see potentially primary schools reopening but only for particular years which is years reception one and six and even then only in a way that allows you to have 10 to 15 children per class so I think a lot of people will be surprised to discover that even for those years the primary schools are not going to open for more than a few days a week for particular children and then the third phase that they're hoping to get to later in the summer would involve hospitality in some way reopening religious ceremonies that kind of thing. But let's be very clear about this. This is a very much a baby step situation. There was a professor talking on a Times podcast a few days ago saying we may only be 10 to 15 percent through the history of COVID-19. And actually, for all the photographs of a couple of rams, tube carriages and buses 
in central London. The TfL statistics, Transport for London, suggest that passenger numbers are still about 94% lower than they were at the same time last year. It's a very interesting approach, Laura Hughes, isn't it, from the Prime Minister? Because when the lockdown began, he was seen as one of the most hawkish people in government that wanted to get the economy moving again as quickly as possible. Whereas there were other people like Matt Hancock, the health secretary, the so-called doves, who wants to move much more slowly in saying that we don't want to overwhelm the NHS. We don't want to risk that second peak and we have to keep this going as long as possible. And following the Prime Minister's own illness, there is this sense that his personal views on this have changed somewhat and he's become much more dovish and the clear message from the PM throughout that broadcast and from the government this week has been we're not going to move too quickly it's going to all be very slowly and the economy is very much going to come second to science and the NHS. What happened was quite interesting though in the sense that the week before newspapers were being briefed that things were going to change a bit more dramatically than they actually were and I think there was a feeling that maybe the message was being spread to give people a little bit of hope. But then when it actually came to it, and you watched that statement given by the Prime Minister on Sunday evening, a lot of people were either disappointed or just incredibly confused. And one of the most noticeable changes was the shift in messaging from the government who went from telling people to stay home to telling them to stay alert. And it's still not entirely clear exactly what that means. So yes, the Prime Minister has been very cautious, but I would also say over the last week, we've seen a real disaster in terms of the way that the message has been communicated, the way it was being briefed to newspapers, and then on record, ministers were telling the public not to read newspapers. It was all very, very chaotic, and it felt a little bit as though they got ahead of themselves. And then they had to massively row back from this optimistic freedom that we thought we might see on Monday and we really, really didn't. Yes, the government's coming for a lot of criticism, Robert Shrimsley, about its messaging over this. And during the initial lockdown, the government had this very clear message, which was stay at home to protect lives, to save the NHS. And it was repeated constantly throughout all the messaging, all the slogans, and very much spoke to how the team in Downing Street workers we saw, of course, get Brexit done, take back control. But the folks I've spoken to in Downing Street acknowledge this is much more complicated because you're saying different things to different people at different times. But that said, there seemed to be a particular level of confusion about this new messaging, which is about staying alert, control the virus and save lives. And the fact this slogan was briefed out in advance to the Sunday newspapers, Boris Johnson then started repeating it and people were scratching their heads. You know, how much confusion really was there? People being unfair or is this just a fact that the next stage of this process is just more complicated? Well, I certainly think that's part of it. And as Laura was saying, the truth is that it's very easy to have a simple, clean message when the message is very, very simple and clean. Stay at home. That's very clear. And I think that stay alert, control the virus. Some of the criticism of the government, I think, has been a little unfair because there is a logic to it. What they're saying is, you know, just be careful. If you're going out into areas where you could be at risk, be careful. I don't think it's an absolutely terrible message. I also, for what it's worth, don't think that these messages are quite as fundamental to people as, as we in the media sometimes assume. They have a value, but the truth is, it's the policy that matters. I think the reason that there was confusion around the messaging is because there was confusion around the policy. And one of the issues that became very, very clear on Sunday evening, Monday, Tuesday, is that 
the government did not actually have answers to the very reasonable questions that people would ask upon hearing the policy, as in, so apparently now I could have a cleaner come to my house and clean my house, but I can't have my mother come to my house. What about if I pay my mother? Can she come then? Why is it I can only meet one person like my sister, but I couldn't meet my brother? I think these questions are very reasonable ones, and the government simply wasn't very good at answering them, and it didn't anticipate the questions that normal people would ask as it started to ease the lockdown. And I think as this process goes on, they're going to have to get better at explaining it. And some of the reasons for some of those policies are plausible. So, for example, the reason you can only meet one person out in the park is because they just want to control crowds in public spaces. And I think they need to be much better at explaining some of those policies and some of the thinking behind them. On the other hand, there are big areas, like, for example, public transport, where you're telling people to go back to work and you haven't answered the fundamental question of how do you get to work. It's all very well saying cycle or walk, but if your work is too far away to make that practical, then that's not very useful advice. Indeed, and the actual delivery of this message made it particularly confusing because one of the key things of this very slight easing of the lockdown we saw on Wednesday was that you can go to the park and have a socially distant chat with one friend. The Prime Minister didn't mention that, but Downing Street did brief journalists that. And then Dominic Raab, the Foreign Secretary, went on radio the next morning and he said that you could meet both your parents in the park and then I had to say, well, actually, that's not true at all. And Jim, it sort of felt that Downing Street's strategy on this was so muddled because they obviously wanted that big moment to the nation, which they got. 27 million people was more than what the last Pimeramans addressed, more than what the Queen, I think, in fact. So they obviously got that sense that Boris Johnson is leading the nation. But what they didn't get was clarity because there was that crucial 12 hours between him giving the speech and the papers coming out that actually explained the detail here. And it does just feel that as we get to those second and third stages, they're going to have to be clearer. So... There was the confusion around the messaging on people going back to work. The Prime Minister had hinted the previous week that people would be going back to work, or those who could and should, would be going back on Monday. And the press release that Number 10 put out on Sunday also referred to this beginning on Monday. And then the unions turned around and said, well, look, you yourselves have said that your 50-page guidance isn't coming out till Monday afternoon and your workplace sectoral guidance isn't coming out till Tuesday. So are you really telling people to go back to work on Monday morning before their employers even know precisely what it is that they're meant to be doing and what they're meant to be providing? And so there was a bit of very swift head scratching inside the upper echelons of the government, and they changed the start date to Wednesday. But, you know, what that signals in terms of how deeply they've thought about the practicalities is a little bit ominous, and it sends out not a great signal. As it was, the guidance on workplace safety did land reasonably well. The unions had been concerned, but in the end, they swallowed most of those concerns. But, you know, if you can't even get that date right, what does that say? And then, Robert, the other element of this, of course, has been the four nations of the union here, that Boris Johnson was speaking as the UK prime minister. But as we know, health is a devolved matter. And his efforts were slightly undermined by the fact that Nicola Sturge in Scotland, Mark Drayford in Wales and Arlene Foster in Northern Ireland took a very different approach. And they said that, in fact, we're not loosening at all. The message stay at home is going to stay in those other three nations apart from England. And again, that added to this level of confusion. border between England and Wales is incredibly porous. There's thousands of journeys every day. Yes, I think there is confusion, particularly for people, as you say, who live or commute over the borders. I think I live in London. I'm not confused. And I think people who live deep in Scotland are not confused. 
most people who live in Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland, understand what the message to them is. But I think what this goes to is also is two deeper points. The first is that there are still thousands and thousands of active cases of coronavirus in Britain at the moment. Therefore, people are concerned about lifting the lockdown even a little bit too early because the contact tracing, the testing, the new app hasn't even been decided upon. So the strategy for controlling the virus as lockdown is eased simply isn't in place yet. I think that's one of the things motivating the devolved parliaments. The second thing is, this is particularly in Scotland, a real opportunity. And up until now, the whole country has moved together as one. And Scotland has benefited from substantial cash, which has come from the Treasury, from the UK government. And that's keeping its economy alive as it is in the rest of the country. And Nicola Sturgeon hasn't had many opportunities to assert herself and assert Scotland as independent from the rest of the UK. But her popularity rating is extremely high. It's far higher than Boris Johnson's in the UK. Her popularity rating in Scotland, the last poll I saw, was in the 70%. And so people in Scotland are listening to her. It is an opportunity for her to differentiate the country from the rest of Britain. And I think that hasn't been possible in the first stages of the crisis. And so without overdoing it, without placing her country in jeopardy, she is looking for opportunities to say, look, we're different and we can cope. And I think the confusion over the messaging just gave her that little opportunity to do so. Absolutely. Now, Laura, the next big date going to be June the 1st. And that's when Mr. Johnson said that if the science changes, more loosening of the lockdown will happen. That's when some non-essential shops begin to open again. And there may also be this concept of the bubble where you can link your household to another household and you can visit other people there. But really, again, it's still pretty stringent stuff. There's not mass socialising here. They still want people to work from home as much as possible. And visiting parents or wider families is still going to be very difficult. That really comes for the third stage, which is at the beginning of July, which again, they see if the science allows it, more people will be allowed to go back to work. Hairdressers, the obviously on everybody's minds at the FT, of course, will open again, as well as part of the hospitality industry. Yeah, the really crucial date is the 1st of June, if you are a parent looking after your child at home, because that's when Boris Johnson said he hoped to get some primary school children back to school, but but a huge row already between the teaching unions and the government as to whether or not it's still safe to do that. And they're arguing that potentially it's not that the government haven't been clear enough about how you can do this in a very safe way. And of course, lots of parents still will be really nervous about sending their children to school, because even if the evidence shows that they are less likely to catch coronavirus, they could still spread it. And if you live with anyone vulnerable in your household, you might not want to send your child away. And this is one of the most emotional arguments, I think, that we've seen in terms of how the government is tackling coronavirus and how it's going to start easing the measures. Because for a lot of people, their children is their most precious cargo. And it's a very emotional thing to send your children back to school during a pandemic particularly when you yourself are being told it's still not safe to get back on the tube. So I think that row is going to be a really, really big one. Then early July, whether or not restaurants, the hospitality industry can slowly start to do things, I still feels like that is quite unlikely. And I think a lot of restaurants are bracing themselves to not open until the end of the year. And that's a really important point when you look at what the chance has done at extending the furlough scheme it's still going to come to an end in October. And if the hospitality industry isn't back up and running, a lot of people are going to lose their jobs having been kept 
running over the last few months. It all feels very, very tentative. And yes, there has been a slightly different approach between the devolved nations. But actually, overall, if you look at it, there does feel to me to be a concrete line of not letting the reproduction, the art level go above one. And while you're keeping it under one, it does actually limit what you can do. And I think if the government starts to see the measures that they introduce increase that R level, they're going to have to rapidly row back. And it's interesting they actually chose to put those dates out there. So I know there was a slight disagreement in cabinet as to whether or not that was a good idea, because you really are putting pressure on yourself and you're really giving the public some sort of roadmap, which is exactly what they wanted to do. But it's dangerous because if it doesn't work, it will look as though they've perhaps missed targets again, or they've given people a lot of false hope. What we have also seen is the outlines of the political debate that's going to form around easing the lockdown. And what you were talking about, schools very much speaks into that, that the opposition Labour Party have been saying, why are you sending our key workers back to the front line, whereas a lot of more white collar workers are being told they can stay at home, Jim. And you can see that over the coming months, this is going to be more and more of a theme of obviously Keir Starmer, the Labour leader, has gone big on PPE equipment and saying that people in the NHS and bus drivers don't have the equipment they want as well. But essentially, the government's plan is saying that those who can't work at home, who tend to be blue collar workers, they have to go back. But folks, journalists like us who can work at home and be protected from the virus are in a much safer position. And that does feel like a risky narrative for Boris Johnson there, because if it does seem this idea that poorer people are having to be more exposed to coronavirus, then that could backfire. Yeah, it's sort of inevitable in a way, because if you can work from home, you should work from home. That's logical. And that's going to be white collar workers. And if your work involves going out to a construction site or acting as a porter or a cleaner or something, then you physically have to be elsewhere. And so it's inevitable that blue collar workers will find themselves more facing danger from the coronavirus. It would be wrong to blame the Conservative government for that situation, but they are definitely vulnerable to these accusations from Labour MPs and from trade unions, not just that they are sending out blue-collar workers while people like us sit at home, but also that they aren't providing enough protection for them. And that's the crucial bit. And it's why there's been such a heated argument about the workplace advice. As I said earlier, even though the unions did say they were not going to carry on fighting the agreement as it stood, they have two outstanding concerns, one of which is the guidance says don't provide any extra PPE for your workers, or could that backfire further down the line? And it also this idea that there should be risk assessments for the workplace, I mean, that is going to happen, but the unions want the risk assessments to be made public. And that is only going to be the case for companies with over 50 staff. And it's only going to be published in a very headline form. You're not actually going to be able to read other people's detailed risk assessments. And there is the potential for litigation where employers have failed to take sufficient provisions and measures to protect staff. And Robert? I think Jim's put his finger on it. I think it is a really important division between the people who have choices about how much to risk their health and can decide whether they want to go back to the office or not, and those who have no choices. But we also need to keep some perspective. A lot of people are desperate to go back to work and are not clamouring to be kept away because this is their livelihood. They need the money. So it is a very, very difficult balancing act. But I do think this division between the people who can avoid risk and the people who can't 
is an important social divide. It's always existed, but now it's more apparent. One could put up with this during the absolute teeth of this crisis because the burden of a crisis never falls evenly. There is always going to be a front line. And I think we can cope with that emotionally. But if we see lots and lots of poorer people going back to work and getting sick, while those of us who can stay secure do so, that is going to be an issue for the government and for the country to address down the line. I do think, by the way, this is part of a broader picture, which is the issue of workplace rights, in that we have an economy which increasingly relies upon people who don't have full contracts. They're on shifts, they're on gig deals, zero hours contracts. They have few rights at work and therefore very, very few abilities to say to bosses, hang on a minute, I can't work in these conditions. Because if you're not in a contract, the boss just says, OK, well, look, there's loads of people unemployed. I'll get somebody else who is prepared to do so. So I think part of this agenda has got to be thinking about the rights of those at work so that they have a little bit more power to say to employers, these aren't fair conditions. And I should say that the ONS figures earlier this week spelt out in very clear detail that it was blue-collar manual workers who have got much higher mortality rates from this disease so far. The other big political news this week came from Chancellor Rishi Sunak. He announced the following scheme where the government will pay up to 80% of the wages for millions of Britons will continue until October. There had been some speculation that Rishi Sunak would reduce this rate to 60%, but the Chancellor is keeping it where it's at right now, but it will gradually taper off during the summer with employers having to take a greater share. Jim, the idea here, I guess, from the Treasury is the alternative of knocking off the furloughing scheme too soon would simply result in mass unemployment. This is obviously a very expensive scheme, a very unconservative scheme to have the state supporting the wages of millions of people across the country. But again, it shows that Rishi Sunak is very much willing to do whatever he has to do to get the economy through this. But it also does point at the bill for this lockdown is going to be huge on the other side. Exactly. So the original cost of the scheme, even for the three months up to the end of June, had been estimated at £40 billion by the OBR. And we're now looking at a price tag, which is going to be close to double that. And I think, to be fair to the Chancellor, he did surprise on the upside from the perspective of both trade unions and employers, because this is now going to continue in its current form for another month to the end of July. It's after that that things get interesting, because that's when employers will have to start contributing And I think whoever did the comms around this was very cunning because they wanted to avoid headlines saying that the rate of support from the government is going to be cut from 80% to 60% or whatever it's going to be. That is actually what is going to happen. And the way they've avoided that headline is by saying that the support will remain at 80% until the end of October. But if employers are going to end up paying 20 percentage points off that for the last couple of months of the scheme, then clearly there is a cut happening in the government support. But should we criticise the government for withdrawing the support? Well, not really, because there's no way that taxpayers can infinitely pay the wages of so many people. When you've got a wage bill for the furlough scheme, which is approaching the cost of the entire NHS, and I think he's come up with a system which does manage to taper it in a way that seems quite fair. And he has also met the demands from business groups for them to be allowed to include part-time workers because there are a lot of factory owners and employers who want to bring back staff gradually and they want to allow part-time work rather than keeping half their workforce furloughed for a very long time. 
And Laura, of course, the longer these kind of schemes go on, the bigger questions are about how this is going to be paid for. And there was a striking leak on the front page of the Daily Telegraph this week that showed some of the ideas the Treasury are looking at because Boris Johnson is desperate to avoid the A word. He doesn't want to have to impose more austerity. So instead, it looks like it's going to be a combination of some tax rises combined with putting that debt over a very long period of time. But you do have to wonder how this is all going to go down with Conservative MPs because most of them are fiscally conservative. They're going to be very uncomfortable with that big debt pile. And some of the tax rises being examined by the Treasury are going to affect Conservative voters, scrapping the pension, triple lock, raising VAT, that sort of thing. Yeah, you're right. This document that was leaked to the Telegraph was really fascinating. And it's interesting to look at why it's been put out there in the public domain. Is Did someone leak it so that the government would start ruling things out? If the document is right. And these are the sorts of things that the government are looking at. It might force the Conservatives into quite an uncomfortable position of breaking promises that were made in their manifesto in the December general election. So something that this document says the Treasury are looking at is scrapping the triple lock on the state pension. So scrapping that would have a huge impact on a lot of Conservative voters. And that's something that they're already incredibly concerned about. Also, they're talking about potentially freezing public sector pay for two years, which again would have an enormous political ramification for those workers who voted maybe Tory for the first time in the last election. And then also given the crisis we've just been facing and the praise and attention that has been given to a lot of low paid frontline workers, that's politically going to be very difficult to do, given they have been the ones putting their lives at risk and really keeping the country going. So it's obviously going to have to be paid for somewhere. And Boris Johnson has repeatedly said, we're not going to go back to the years of austerity. The Treasury have been quite keen on emphasising the fact that no decisions have actually been made. But it is interesting to know that these conversations are happening. And I think the leak of that document means ministers are now going to have to start being a little bit more honest with the public about how the government and we, the taxpayer, are also going to have to start paying back the enormous cost of this pandemic. And finally, briefly, Robert, the other bit of economic news we saw this week was the housing market, which has all been frozen since the lockdown began. And Robert, the Housing and Local Government Secretary, announced his package to try get things moving. But there's, of course, this fear that the housing market is going to stall, if not crash after this, because the whole market is going to be glutted up as a result of the lockdown. In fact, I think it was Jim that broke this story, but he's absolutely right. They're trying to at least end the freeze whereby people who were about to move house, sell their house, get a new rental accommodation, buy a house, can at least begin the process of starting to do that again. And that's undoubtedly welcome. I think in the long run, these measures will help a little bit. But the fundamental fact is if people are frightened, if people are worried about their future, about their job, about the state of the economy generally, that's never a great time to be thinking about moving house. Renting is different. Obviously, people have the end of their contracts. They have to think they sometimes have to move. But I think in terms of purchasing, we should expect to see the housing market running pretty cold for quite a long time. And that's it for this week's episode. Thank you very much as ever to Jim, Laura and Robert for joining. In the meantime, if you like what you've heard and like to see some more FT journalism, then do take a look at our latest subscription offers, which you can find at ft.com forward slash offer. FT Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Anna Dedda and Breen Turner. Until next week, thanks for listening. Stay safe and keep well.
Did you know the Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.